Welcome to the Global Mission Awareness Podcast, Kingdom Family Talks. This is episode one featuring Leif Hetland and the GMA team as they talk about Leif's childhood, growing up in Norway, and becoming the man and father he is today. Enjoy. It's pretty foamy in here. You can get more foamy. Welcome again to the Global Mission Awareness Podcast. This is take 397. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, this is the first podcast that we've ever done, and it's really exciting, actually. Um, I am Daniel Turner. I am the media manager on the Global Mission Awareness team, and my partner here is... I'm Alicia Edwards. I'm the partner coordinator here at Global Mission Awareness. And the main man himself, Leif Hetland. I'm Leif Hetland. <laughs> I'm also part of this wonderful family called Global Mission Awareness. He is the, the janitor that, that <laughs> vacuums at, at night. No, uh, no. so we're, we're doing this podcast really just to kind of, I mean, today is just going to be an introduction to Leif. There's actually a lot of questions that I have about you and your life and just, I don't like your childhood and all that stuff. I'm just in the dark and would love to know. And so we'd figure everybody else would love to know as well. Um, so, I mean, we can just start with just what was, as a kid, what was it like growing up in Norway? Well, uh, as I say, I was born January 13, 1966. So that tells You're me young. That I'm getting yeah. pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> About uh, 50 years ago. And Norway was a very different country than it is today, uh, mainly because the oil and the gas industry was found after I was born. But I was born in, uh, in Stavanger. My parents... Uh, as I'm saying, they, they had, at that time, they had one sister. She's a little over a year older than me. And my dad was a hardworking guy that uh, it was back in the days where he was the breadwinner and my mom was the homemaker. So uh, I would say some of my earliest childhood memories was just when we started, my dad started to build our home, our first home. And just even as a child there, it was, it was actually very, the first nine years of my life was very, very good. It was, mm. you felt very secure. You felt loved and valued. Later on, my twin brothers came along when I was about three and a half years in, in the same place. Oh, wow. So certainly now we have four kids. I think that part of the memory with one of my twin brothers, he was very, very sick when, uh, when, when he was just born. Yeah. And I just, it was maybe one of the first time. I can remember feeling fear in a sense because we had one lady. She came over to the house and she had to uh, uh, she had to cook for us, but she didn't know how to cook. I mean, I just remember even as a young child, three and a half, four years old, how the food tasted and how I missed my mom at the time yeah. because she was a lot in the hospital at that time period. And there was twin brothers. So anyway, it was the first nine years of my life. I think I mean, all I have is positive memories in regard to. Uh, Felt secured, felt loved, had some good friends, went to school in that area. But the area where we came from, they have kind of a special accent, like you would do maybe in a deep south here. We Stavanger <laughs> Sunnis. Yeah. So my dad decided when I was about nine, nine and a half years old, that we're going to move to another city. And he was going to start a business. And and at that moment is probably one of my first childhood memory of just feeling I mean, you, you felt lost in a yeah. sense. I How felt, old were you? I was nine, nine, nine and a yeah. half. And I think that I didn't know what kind of impact in a negative way that had on me hmm. because it's almost like I was uprooted from my home. Yeah. That was my my security. I knew everything. That I was uprooted from my friends, neighborhood, everything that kind of was secure. And 
I still remember it was in the summer of 1975 when we moved then to uh, Haugesson, Norway. Uh, my dad was working constantly because he was trying to put together to get the business started. Mm. And we were building a house out by the ocean, by the coast, but it was not ready. Mm. So as a result of that, we ended up living on the top, on the, the whole family. At that time, we were six children and, of course, my mom and dad. So here we are, eight people right. living on the top of my dad's shop while he was working constantly. So, And it was right by the fire station in downtown. So it was kind of a... Uh, you're in a little downtown area and people were drunk outside and suddenly mm. the fire alarm went off and the fire trucks went out and then I had to take my bicycle and bike to school. Mm. And the school was in the area where we were about to move, but that took a while before mm. we moved there while they were building the home. So I think that that was probably some of the restlessness, some yeah. of the insecurity, some of those things was... I, I think probably started around at that age when I came there mm. and in the next moment you, you're trying to find yourself and yeah. some people were teasing me because of my accent and trying mm. to connect with friends because as I say, I lived in a downtown area while they sure. lived out in the subdivision. That's yeah. where they lived and they, they had friendship, hang out after school mm. where I had to come back back mm. home. So I think right. that, that that was a very, very tough season. I didn't know how much that was part of molding and mm. some of the difficulties I later went through in yeah. life. Yeah. You mentioned that your dad worked a lot. Did that affect your relationship with him at all and how close you kind of felt to him or what kind of father figure he became to you because of that? Well, I, I mean, my dad today is a phenomenal uh, father, but I think that the, even the culture and the background that we came from it was was maybe different than even what we are today because mm. as I'm saying he he did go to work and he took care he provided for you and that's pretty much how love looked like is mm-hmm. I do these things for you right. and I mean I'm providing roof over your head you have food on your table you have clothes and mm. nothing to complain about so it's my mom was very much involved in our lives in a sense mm. of both home but again right. as I said we had twin brothers that was three and a half years younger than me and then eventually you have two other sisters so at that time period we you have one baby and one that was toddler and then right. twin brothers and then you're coming along as yeah uh, i'm about nine years old so there's no doubt about it in a sense that she they they all did the best that they could but at the same time period uh, at the time period when you had a lot of uh, if you could say the black hole in your soul where there was this emptiness there was these things that you were looking for security love mm-hmm. affirmation there's all these things that yeah. you were going through there was not a whole lot of time to process that there was right. not a whole lot of places you could go to try to fill some yeah. of those areas so because wow. of just the busyness of life and mm-hmm. the tension that you were living in so i'm sure that some of that affected me uh, i loved at the time period by the time we moved to the ocean and moved into this house, it was a beautiful home. And that's in Haugesund. Right? That's in Haugesund, yeah. So it's the same place, but only yeah. you're about a couple of miles now outside in the subdivision, yeah. and it's right by the ocean. So looking at the ocean and playing in the ocean, and even with some of our friends, we build these little small little floats that we were out there floating with to go over to some of these small little islands. And yeah, so cool. I think that to a certain degree, that uh, uh, even in that season in life i think i was about 12 13 years old i still have a, a lot of good memories i probably tried to be like the class clown because that that that, that also gives you in a sense of uh, value identity 
so I, I think as the same when I was nine, nine and a half, some of the restlessness is probably mm. the first time I can say it. And it's been part of who I have been ever since. Wow. And I can see that, that that restlessness of looking for identity, looking for security, looking mm. for value, looking... And it created a little vacuum at mm. that time period. It's strange that about eight, nine months, how that how that has impacted your life in many wow. different ways. That's crazy. Being um, one of six children, what was it like during that season in particular? What was, your, what was the dynamic between siblings during that season? Were you close? You said you didn't have a lot of friends, but did, mm. were you close to your siblings? I know there was a difference in age, but... I would maybe, I mean, in one way, yes, and another way, no. As I say, my sister and I were very different, and and we became very different even as we grew up. <laughs> so that's, and she was about the, the closest to my age. And of course, yeah. the twin brothers had a lot in common in a sense. They are twins, and I'm not. So I think that to a certain degree, when you were a child, you were in home, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and but at the same time period, I do not think that in a sense of friendship level and all of those things at that time period. Today, we have a phenomenal relationship. Mm. But back then, as I grew up, I had a couple of friends. Uh, one of the guys the kind of we bought were pretty wild in nature. We found each other. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so there was a couple of people that I started to connect with, as well as I started to get involved in different sports. That, mm-hmm. And I tried different things because, again... You're trying to look for value. So I played right. soccer, I oh, paddling kayak, mm-hmm. and I did that That's for awesome. a season. So I tried all different types of sports. And then eventually I got in, uh, involved in martial arts. And that was kind of a mm-hmm. started to box at the age of 12. And oh, I wow. think part of the reason I started to box and boxing was because uh, I was smaller than a lot of the other kids. So mm-hmm. being smaller than here's a way I can stand up for myself. And, yeah. and then later on into martial arts uh, and again part of that was also connected so i i think that in those years and, and i also started to work very young i mean i i remember and some of that is probably the performer in me but even at the age of 12 uh, i had an opportunity to pick strawberries and it's just a short strawberry season mm-hmm. yeah. but again you you got paid by by the pound each mm-hmm. one of these curves that you picked mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 people were picking strawberry. And I ended up as a 12-year-old as the second fastest. There was only one lady I remember mm-hmm. to beat me. So it was kind of that also still, yeah, even with the adults and everything. Yeah. Yeah, the competition, yeah. I'm, I'm still competing here. Or, well, maybe next time, next day, I'm going I'm to pick so-and-so many. And just that. Cool. And later on, I got a job then in working with flowers and cucumbers. It was in, in the greenery, mm-hmm. uh, greenhouse uh, so, so that was kind of also fun learning with plants and didn't make a whole lot of money in today's currency. That would be about two dollars an hour, wow. uh, but just uh, went to school, worked, but had good work ethics. I still remember in Norwegian crown at the time it was about five hundred, but that would equal to about seventy, eighty dollars. I bought my first sofa for my room myself, oh, as I was probably about thirteen or fourteen. So I think wow. some of the value system including some of the business sense that was in me even at that age mm-hmm. because I collected stamps and coins and then I started to buy and sell and that was even another thing there in the sense of just to, to see goes to school start to dabbling with different business yeah. opportunities mm-hmm. and entrepreneur and entrepreneur 14, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so it was still in my system so but pretty much I started also at that time period uh, 
I think I was 13 years old, was very disappointed. There was a couple of things that happened, but one of them, my parents are Christians and in the first nine years, we were more Pentecostal, and this is back in the Pentecostal holiness. Mm-hmm. Man, everything was wrong, and I mean, you better do not play cards, do not do this, do not do that, do not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a long list of all yeah. the things you can't do, and very few things you can do. And if you did those few things very well, then you got accepted and valued. But if you didn't live up to it, in the next moment, we we're going to isolate you or punish you. Mm-hmm. And so you live in fear in that system. So I still remember from early childhood kind of the Pentecostal holiness. Women didn't cut their hair, long skirts. Mm. So in the earlier childhood, but later on we moved and it was more an evangelical free, it's called Evangelical Covenant Church, when I was about nine years old. So now I'm about 13. And uh, at that moment, uh, I still remember it was just one little thing that also had an impact, but it just, uh, I had a t-shirt on and we had three soccer team in our city. Mm. And the soccer team that I shared for and I was a fan of, we had a small little Bible study with some other, I mean, in junior high age. And they decided, okay, they, they liked a different team. And there was a few girls and guys. But all these guys jumped me. And they were going to tear off that shirt. Uh-huh. But I remember that was like, I mean, that they didn't know. You fought as much as you could, but you couldn't because there were several of them and they hold you down. Yeah. And, and it was just, but something took place. Like my parents had encouraged me, you need to be part of this Bible study, this discipleship thing. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember very clearly, I made a statement, if this is God, then I'm going to go after the devil. Mm. And I wow. still remember that one statement when I was about 13 years old. And uh, I mm. left the church there. And I went to a place where there were some alcoholics and druggies. They gather, mainly they got free food and like that. Uh, a place called Blue Cross, which was a center where they kind of just... They gather around and they, it, it was a ministry mm. to a certain degree that was about to help them. And there was part of my curiosity ended up there. And I remember that was the first time at the age of 13, I smoked hashish. Wow. And it started a journey of, wow, these people there, I felt accepted. These mm. people and started yeah. to hang around these people and yeah. started to smoke dope. And that started the next five years into where I don't have that many good memories it mm. was a, it was a very rough season from mm. i was 13 to i was 18 it's almost like i lost five years of my life wow. in regard to and mm. eventually pretty much being a suicidal wow. drug druggy by the time i was yeah. 18 years old weighed about 100 pounds and didn't have a whole lot of hope wow. not a whole lot of life not a whole lot of purpose very destructive in many different ways mm. still had a seed that had been planted in me even i know that was connected to god's destiny over my life mm. but also i could see very clearly that uh, as i was running as far away from the gods i was pretty much like the prodigal son i mean i, I was hitting the pig yeah. pen by the time i was 18 that's interesting too because it's like nowadays you have a lot of you know their kids doing that but they do it out of rebellion yours was just out of like mm-hmm. i'm just looking for connection and i just actually and you just happen to find that place of you felt secure amongst those people now, I, think, I think yeah it, but i think maybe it was rebellion also but i think to a certain degree i, I remember i made that vow yeah if this mm-hmm. is god i'm going to go for the devil wow. so even from the music and some mm-hmm. of the destructive music that was more on the black metal uh, to every ear it was almost like it was pursuing darkness because yeah. pain seeks pleasure i had right. this pain on the inside and there were several other things that led to that pain but now in the next moment I'm going to do something to make me feel good. And mm. the best way I can describe it, because I used this analogy before, if you take a two-egged knife 
this is how the Eskimos kills a wolf. And they take this two-egged knife and they put it in blood. Mm. And then they put it out and it freezes. It becomes like a blood popsicle. Mm. And so the wolf comes there and it licks. And, oh, it tastes good. And it licks again and again and again. But it doesn't realize the more licks, the more numb the tongue gets. And by the oh, time wow. it hits the knife, it's a little bit too late because wow. you start to cut yourself, but oh, you don't wow. feel it. And then you start. And that's pretty much that lifestyle that... That 13-year-old is starting, oh, you get a lick, that felt good, and things started right. to happen, both right. in the environment. Also, I remember I was probably about 16, 17 years old by the time uh, both amphetamine and heroin came into the sea. Mm. So instead of before, uh, people were pretty loyal to one another, was camaraderie, but now everybody was just about themselves to get their next fix or to get their next. So I see even that, how the environment changed, how people were pretty much turned... I mean, they, they would just stab each other. It became a totally different world when the powder came in. Mm. And at that time, Peter Noro Oslo was the only one that pretty much had on a regular basis. We could have some now and then, but it was not enough really to get people addicted mm. in a sense of uh, you were addicted just to the more milder drugs. But the hard drug scene, and I didn't get that heavily into it in a sense uh, at, at the time, but used a lot of other things, but not, as I said, it was, I'm glad that it was not heroin in a sense, on a consistent basis mm. in the earlier days. So uh, anyway, it's uh, so that was kind of a long journey. I, so people ask me, when did you get saved? And I say, mm. Man, to one degree, I did when I was 13. Right. And I gave my life. But then that's also when I turned totally away from him mm-hmm. because of this. And then, but again, so it depends if you're a Calvinist or Arminianist, meaning mm-hmm. uh, so uh, if you feel secure about your salvation. <laughs> so sometimes yeah. I describe it when I was 18 years old. Uh, in August of uh, 1984. And other times I described this experience in 1979 as when I prayed to invite Jesus into my life. Mm. Wow. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeez. How do you think that um, it's different growing up in the U S versus uh, growing up in Norway? I think there's many different things with our culture and background. Uh, I just, I mean, quite a few just practical type of things. First of all, we have a, we have social medicine. Mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, the country was not very wealthy or rich. So in that sense, you could see that people worked hard, they struggled hard. Uh, it's much smaller environment. Of course, I know people in the States can get me brought up also in a smaller environment. Mm-hmm. So just, I think the worldview, you are from a mm-hmm. country where it's not enough just to speak Norwegian. You need to have other languages. That's one element. Uh, growing up as a kid in Norway, I think that uh, some of the more socialistic influence that we had also, like in the States, which would be very much against our culture in Norway. I mean, here you can put on your bumper sticker, my child is an honor student or whatever. In Norway, that would never happen mm. in a sense. So so there, the tendency many times, they were very good at taking care of the weaker one, but perhaps not celebrating. And that probably was part of my influence too, because I maybe was unique. I was different. Mm-hmm. I was rare. I carry something bigger than myself. Mm. I was a dreamer, but somehow yeah. the culture is more that you need to, you need to adjust to the country. Mm-hmm. And the best way I can describe it is almost that they they sterilize an atmosphere. I'm not saying that necessarily negative because it can also be positive, but you create an environment like even now when I was just home in Norway, they show us that we have cameras everywhere when you drive in the traffic. Mm-hmm. And if you break this, 
have policies, then you get punished because the society fits very mm. in for the people it can fits into the framework. So we set up certain rules and regulation. You know that when you do that, you have security and the system will take care of you and you take mm. care of the system. So in the sense that there is an incredible amount of security, mm-hmm. uh, you have government in your corner. So even as you grew up, you just knew that it sense uh, there's not a whole lot you can fail. So I learned that early on in life. There are certain things you can succeed a little bit more. But it's also very difficult to, and, and today it's much easier, but it's much more difficult to be kind of a, be the unique, the rare, because it's a lonely journey. Say mm. if you are a dreamer and you do mm-hmm. something yeah, bigger totally. than the average, because mm. almost everybody in the average wants to pull you back again, right. because this is not normal to the society. So don't speak too big words. Do not think you're better than anybody else. Do not, I mean, so there's a lot mm. of things in the society that says pretty much that you can be average and around average, but don't. Don't go so much beyond that. It's not something that is necessary being celebrated. So I'm saying that just also that it has a strength, but it also had certain weaknesses, especially mm-hmm. if you're a dreamer and especially if you were created for something much bigger than yourself. And when you start with that, then that restlessness in the system is can also be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that Norway is a very secure place. It's a, I remember that when I grew up, I mean, if there was a murder... It's like the whole country wow. was on all the national paper wow. was on television. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, there was a murder. And the whole place was shocked. Or first time I know there was a murder in my city. I mean, I can still remember it. Like wow. when I'm in the States, I mean, it's, it's like in the smaller like things, murders yeah. and killings right. everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just that, yeah, I would say very much of a law abiding. The country have changed mm-hmm. because even the, I mean, I'm just using the black white situation. When I grew up, I knew of three blacks, mm-hmm. and as the only, mm-hmm. and they were all adopted from Africa as oh. babies. So they spoke fluently Norwegian. Mm-hmm. And one of them was almost our neighbor. Was two blacks that somebody adopted, and then there was another one. I mean, I can still. That's the only from other nationality wow. I knew. Wow. And then eventually, when I came to the deep south, Selma, Alabama, in mm-hmm. 1984, it was a different yeah. wall in regard because it was still. Even if it is a long time after the civil rights movement, it's, it's still this tension yeah. was going on. And I learned yeah. that, like, Leif, you do not yeah. understand. It's almost like these people are not. And I didn't have any color blindness. Right. So I came with a whole different filter system mm-hmm. where I couldn't see any difference between black and white in regard to. Yeah. And some of those, so I didn't have a history of that. Yeah. Uh, I had a history in regard to how you treat people and how you honor people and how it was just. Some of that is also because of the good way I was raised, but also some of it had to do with my country. Mm-hmm. And that's changing now with all the immigration that is coming in and all these other nationality. And that creates a lot of fear within the system because mm-hmm. a lot of those people, they don't know how to behave and we don't know how to simulate them into the Norwegian culture. So they don't act like Norwegians. Yeah. There's something in the morality of Norway you don't take from people or you mm-hmm. do not mm-hmm. hurt people. Or I mean, even so it's like, when some of this evil started to take place in our country, people didn't know how to respond because the normality of the society is that people are respect everybody. Respect yeah. everybody. Yeah. They mm-hmm. honor you, generous you, and you see that with our country, Norway. We, we, yeah. we were known for that. We take care of one another, and and we, I mean, this is it's, it's a caring community. 
yeah. in so many different ways. And if you if you're part of this society and you put into this society, you get out of this society, and wow. and, and it's almost like a big family, the whole country. Wow. And then in the next moment, that family is being interrupted by mm-hmm. a lot of different nationality coming in, where there's been war as well mm-hmm. as out of religion than my country mm-hmm. was, and some of that has created a lot of tension. And I see it especially now, years later. So I'm just saying that in regard to growing up, yeah. It was it was different in a sense of, I think some of our value system mm-hmm. was also different because my parents came from World War Two. We were occupied for five years, mm. so they were born during World War Two when the country. So what freedom meant and what they paid that we were able to be part of, mm-hmm. yeah. and some of the value system that was played, instilled in us. It's just kind of a, what I call just basic yeah. value system, basic yeah. ethics, basic morals. Some of that was there. Well, First time I landed in Los Angeles in 1984 it was like hmm. there was war going on between two major gangs and they had killings and helicopter and it was like this culture shock cult- totally a culture yeah. shock for me in the sense that when I first came and I'm not saying that the country is America is like Los Angeles so I think it's a mm-hmm. is a very different two totally different societies in many ways and and I love both of them so if I could mm-hmm. take the best out of both culture right. I would find a, the perfect country yeah. Yeah, and you have four kids, yeah. yeah. And how many of them were born in Norway? Uh, three of them were born three in Norway. And that's also an interesting thing because my wife can't describe it. She's American. But uh, Leif Emanuel, he's 26. Uh, he was born here in the States. And when mm-hmm. he was a little over a year old, we moved back to Norway for seven years. Wow. So, so in a sense, so, and that's when the three daughters was born. But I still remember because I didn't have insurance. Not because I didn't want to. But I I was a Christian actor from 84 to 1988. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. how I met my wife in 1988, doing a performance as I traveled all over the country. Oh, wow. So I had been I to like 44 states that's and so I had cool. been to quite a few countries uh, just traveling with this theater company. But anyway, it's... Uh, so when my son was born and I was working several different jobs and this is... That's the same back in 1988 yeah. when the minimum wage was... 365 or whatever and so you you make maybe five dollars an hour and but there was no insurance so then you either have to get education because if you get an education then you can get a better job and then that company will take care of you and it was that kind of a that's still before pretty much technology and everything else that go over where right that that actually became a lie but Mm -hmm. for us that was kind of the truth so i tried to go to college i tried to go to school uh yeah, yeah, excuse me, college and school, while I was working several jobs and Jennifer was pregnant with Leif Emanuel. And when he was born, I still remember it cost us about a little over $5,000. Because if you're looking at the doctor and you're looking at the yeah. hospital, and that was just two days in the hospital, we need to hurry to get you out of here wow. because you don't have insurance because this <clears throat> cost, I mean, we're talking about wow. extremely amount of money. Uh, I mean, back then when you yeah, were living from paycheck to right. paycheck. Mm-hmm. And then when we came back to Norway, just a different way you work. It's not the first thing when you get to the hospital. It's not, do you have insurance? Do you have money to pay for this? In Norway, it was like my wife came down when my other three children were born. It's coming into the hospital. Uh, how, how do you want this baby? And I said, do you want to stand? Or do you want to do it in water? Or, wow. And then in the next moment, uh, first of all, the government gives you money every month just because you have children. The second of all, here is money for, so here's a one-time cash amount 
so that you have for the bed that you need and the strollers wow. and all those different wow. things. And mm. so, I mean, we left That's there crazy. with. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just saying that we we have a nice taxation system, yeah. And, yeah. but we are very very. I'm just saying the different. So even therefore, having my three daughters born in Norway, you can talk to my wife and the very pleasant experience. So now I'm mm. putting some pros on Norway to in Norway and the way they took care of her and mm-hmm. there was never any thought about hey let's hurry to get you out of here or money it's yeah. more how can we take care of you and wow look at this baby and everybody catered to and then when she came out of there the whole support from the system because this was being celebrated in a sense so that was a, I think a very good pleasant time and I became also a pastor during that time period in Norway so mm. yeah my son was born uh here in the States, but he moved. So he is actually the one that knows the Norwegian culture the best because he was a little over one year old and he was there until second grade. So he went to school, he learned a language, he played around with friends, even have the accent over there. So he, Mm. I mean, he fell in love with Norway. It was very, very difficult for him when we moved back to the States. I mean, he was Mm. definitely the one that that was, that was the toughest, the hardest thing. And interesting, he was about the same age that I did when I moved. So that was a big tension Mm. and a Mm. tough time when we moved back. What initially uh, motivated you to guys to move from the States back to Norway? First, from the States, the, the biggest motivation was that uh, my, yeah, I, I wanted my wife to know my country mm-hmm. and my culture and my yeah. language. To some, because I knew we come from two totally different worldviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, totally. hey, she is good old Southern girl, Southern Baptist, came from a, her father's a Southern Baptist minister and just came from a very conservative worldview. And here I am, a Norwegian that has traveled the world that had been a prodigal son and she had been a good prodigal daughter. She's mm-hmm. always been out there on the field being with God in a sense and never would never even thought about doing something wrong, that kind of a field. So I think that to a certain degree, we had some culture shock when we first got married. We thought mm-hmm. it's kind of the honeymoon is over and didn't take a long time before she's pregnant and working several jobs. And you're in a system where she's going to be a homemaker and a wife and a mother. And now not making a lot of money per hour, you have to work more hours. So you work 16, 18 hour days. So after a while here, we just started to sense and the door opened up because in my dad's business my brother had to go in the military and he was then running the shop for my dad and my dad was opening up another business so i think the opportunity was okay i can come and use the apartment of my brother run the business for my dad so at least i have mm-hmm. income and place to stay and this would give us that year or 18 months or whatever that my brother is there uh, i have an opportunity at least i have a job with a place to stay and and we can live okay and live well, not extravagant, but just. So I think that that, that motivated us in 91, mainly just for her to be able to know the language, the culture, knowing my family. So I thought, okay, if we put it one year there, I still would continue some of my schooling in the States, mm. continue to get education. And then, so that was the thought. But that one year lasted seven. Mm-hmm. So it was six more years than we than was planned. I think we... Several different things happened. And it were, looking back at it, it was a phenomenal time in our life, in a sense. I mean, both with a... Uh, look, at that time, you thought things was very busy. <laughs> because, of course, you I have a full-time job. I started a taekwondo school oh, uh, wow. over there. So I was... A, a, plus, I traveled some in the week and ministering. So I did it. always wow. been busy doing a lot. Mm-hmm. But my wife was at home and with the kids, you go to the playground, she learned Norwegian that way. And eventually I became a pastor after that year and a half mm. in a nice little Baptist church. And they also was like, wow, you're pastoring a church, 
juggling, doing a few other things. But still, now you think it's so busy being a husband, being a father, being a pastor, being. Yeah. But at the same time, but looking back at it now, when you're juggling what I do all over <laughs> the world, it's like, wow, that was actually a phenomenal season. I got yeah. to mm-hmm. be home and sleep in my own bed yeah. most of the time. I yeah. did a few trips here and there around the world, but the rest of the time I'm at home. Mm. So it's just, uh, so I think it was, it was a very, very good season looking back and many of the things, including the time when Randy Clark prayed for me, June 6, 1995. That was during that season where I got the importation, the introduction to the nations, mm. the unreached areas of the world. I got to do some trips around the world. So I think to to, to many degrees, uh, it gave me very good security, good foundation, uh, very, very healthy season in our mm. life. Even yeah. at the time period, you maybe didn't see it, but reflecting and looking back. So both for the kids, because I did have time when they were babies and a mm-hmm. time with them. And uh, I think it's mainly been the last 16 years mm. that that I've been gone. I've been gone a lot. Yeah. Uh, gone a lot. Uh, I'm talking about more extreme. Than yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's interesting. I wanted to back up if we can for just a mm-hmm. second and um, hear a little bit about why you moved from Norway to the U.S. to begin with, because we kind of brushed over that quickly. And yeah, I thought yeah. the question was actually why we moved from the states to Norway, but then yes, yeah, no, so we now, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the question. Yeah, and then that now we're going back yeah. again. But we kind of skipped over how oh, yeah. you got here and then met Jennifer yeah. and moved. Oh yeah, back then in '88, yeah, for so. first time, yeah, because we've had two moves. Yeah. As I'm saying, I in 1984, and that's kind of a fun, strange thing. I had gone to a boarding school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one I did, I got kicked out because, again, both my parents and everybody wanted me off somewhere where I maybe could get some help. And we thought, there's this nice Christian boarding school. That's going to be a good place. Mm-hmm. And I think I'd been there for five or six days before the police came. And we, uh, because of both, yeah, we were buying some drugs. And it was just one of these. We used just that as a platform to continue because nobody has ever dealt with a heart. So I kind of left that school, was on the run for a season, mm-hmm. kind of as a prodigal son. And then uh, I ended up in another boarding school after I came home because, again, what am I supposed to do? And at that time, period, I was very destructive. And without them knowing that I've been kicked out because it was so fast. This is before you go in and Google you or right. whatever. So, <laughs> so just, I ended up in the other place. They found out later on that I've been kicked up. And now I was already yeah, there and this and that. Place, so it was, yeah. But even that time period... Of, just it was as I say, I was very destructive. It was a very dark season. Mm-hmm. We're back in nineteen eighty three to eighty four. Uh, so the time came when I was finishing that school, and and by the way, in that school there was a Christian repertory theater company called Covenant Players. Okay. They were doing a performance in our school, and I remember they had a little question and answering time, and I kind of took up my hand and made flippant kind of a question. One of the people in the school. Put my name because I say if you are interested in joining this group, and again it's kind of I will be the least one. But he had put my name on there. Yeah, this is a so joke. joke it's a joke. Yeah, oh, it's wow. a joke. Yeah. So eventually the name ended up there as a joke, uh, <laughs> in a sense. So somehow that name was mixed into when they then did this interview. I got me this call, and I was like struggling and figuring. Me and my dad, there was a lot of tension. Because yeah. when I finished this school and survived, mm-hmm. and it was a rough time because I used them for money. I used everybody. It was just, but it's like, I don't know what to do with my life. Didn't have any mm-hmm. purpose. Didn't have any passion. My parents knew I had to do something. And then I'm getting this phone call. Hello, is this Leif Hetland? And I mean, in in, in we and they say, yeah, uh, are you coming to Germany? Because you're being accepted by Covenant Players. Wow. 
<laughs> Later on, I found out that in a totally different city, somebody had been interviewed. And then somehow they didn't have their name. That's, I found out that a long oh, wow. time later. Wow, and some of my name ended up. So this person was qualified. But, oh, but your name was But didn't did have full of the name. And somehow my name came up. I had no clue how that happened. I just didn't wow. know. So in August then of 1984, I left uh, to Germany wow. for acting classes and acting training. And uh, it's also <laughs> kind of a fun story because... One of the first places they sent me back after I was fin- finished this intense training, and I was still using some pills and mm-hmm. still had uh, some some issues. Uh, they sent me back again to Norway as part of the tour hmm. from Germany. And here you're living on the road, and, and we did a performance in one of the prisons and jails. And here is even people that I used to use drugs with. I was in prison, <laughs> wow. and they came up to me. Yeah, they came up to me and said, "Hey," oh, and they thought I was just using this right. as a platform to bring drugs in for them. <laughs> So that's kind of yeah. so. That, so that started, and I, I remember back in those days, it dealt with one of the plays we did had to do about total forgiveness, and I still that would had a big impact. It was also a Catholic that was part of a group that had a big impact on me, and mm-hmm. so that started my encounter with Jesus, and then uh, I started to travel with them from there. After the six months, we went back to Germany for further acting training. Mm-hmm. Then they sent me on the next trip to Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Ireland for six months. So I traveled all over there with wow. a tour, doing performances, and, uh, and that's pretty much where I learned English. So that's why I still have my accent is a little bit Scottish, Irish. And so when my wife first met me, <laughs> she thought I was from Scotland or Ireland oh, because wow. I had a little of that Irish R. And uh, so anyway, that time, that was also a very good season. I got actually baptized in the Holy Spirit in Ireland wow. in a Catholic church in Waterford. Wow. So part of that. I had one year in Europe and then mm-hmm. one year in the States. That's okay. when I mentioned. And then I came over to Los Angeles and for spent three months intense in acting classes. And so you had training during mm-hmm. the summer and winter. And then you were on the road pretty much from August to December. And then you have an intense training and then on the road again in the end of January to June. And then the summer was training. And there was several different bases around the world, which is was the largest Christian repertory theater company. So they were based about Los Angeles. So we had one year, and the visa you had was also B1, B2. So I could do that. It was not, it's pretty much, you hardly made money. This mm-hmm. was struggling to survive. But looking back, I got to know people. Right. Not, got to know everything from prisons to schools to churches to stay in homes primarily with people and time mm-hmm. spared. Very seldom did you stay in a motel or uh, mm-hmm. didn't have any money. And it was just, so in 1988, now I was a leader of a group. So I kind of a Climbed the ladder okay. and for right. Southeast. So we did a tour in the Southeast that I was the director for and I had a group working with me. And we went to Edgewood Baptist Church in Columbus, Georgia, 1988. And we did a did a performance. And that was where mm-hmm. her father was one of the pastors. Oh, and cool. Jennifer attended the performance. Right. And she first, this is kind of her way of describing it. She first thought, I mean, he's kind of acute and this and that. And <laughs> then I came out. And then I stood around with a water fountain in the back of that church. And there was a group of younger girls that wanted me to sign different things. And oh, she's natural, like, yeah. Oh, he is, I don't know, <laughs> forget about it. I'm too old for this. And she's oh, like, wow. But we had one girl in our group named Christina. And Christina spoke Spanish. And somehow Christina and her connected because Jennifer was learning Spanish at the time. And, and that led to Christina saying, hey, what are you doing? Oh, well. Jennifer was just pretty much at home and babysitting because her parents was very conservative. Mm-hmm. She's going to be a wife and a mother 
so, mm. so she was just kind of awaiting and, and God had not let it. So Christina said, why don't you take maybe a year or two and travel the world with covenant players? Oh. And then you can maybe get some experience traveling, maybe meeting somebody there. And, uh, and eventually, yeah, let's. It was just kind of chit chat between two girls. But he said, but while Leif is in town, let him do the interview with you. And that started our process. So I did an interview for her and I said, I think you're too conservative for this group. <laughs> in a sense, I, I ended up. And uh, anyway, so the ninth, that was in 1988. And How old were you? I was, oh, I'm trying to remember, 22 at 22. the time. Wow. And then that started, uh, so while I was on the road, Again, and I had a couple of other girls at the time because being on the road, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also came from a different worldview in yes. a sense. So it's not, I was not serious. It's not so much in Norway, you're dating this and that. a good was looking just, guy. Yeah, yeah, I, was just, I was just on the road. So anyway, so we, uh, but finally uh, something started to happen as, because now I was finishing and I had to make, either go to Australia actually was one of the option in, in 1988 cool. and to travel with them. Or I had to join the Norwegian military. And this is forced to join the military because if not, it's a prison uh, sentence. Mm. So they everybody in Norway served the country. That's kind of when you grow up in Norway. And I kind of a prolonged it because of I was out of the country. So, mm. okay, when do I serve or should I go to Australia to stay out of the country? Did not mm. know. But through that, I decided I'm going to go home and I'm trying to apply. And that's when we... Uh, so I went down to see Jennifer. And I at that time, paid also pretty much just cut because again I didn't have the time to build a relationship with mm -hmm. much of the girls but I met with one uh, her name was Angela just met with her and I realized now nah, this is not going to work I went on a kind of a vacation with her family and went back and met to Jennifer and that's kind of when we had our first date and connected I went back to Norway and again we had two totally different worldviews so if you mm -hmm. ask her how did you get engaged and everything yes. else and, <laughs> and it's pretty much over the phone and she said but you never asked me to marry you I said well I don't ask question that I know the answer <laughs> so I tell you there was no romance I was yeah. not the most romantic guy and we'll have to bring her on the podcast yeah, you have to do that sometimes some yeah, yeah. hers is much better than mine I promise <laughs> because again yeah. I, I don't know if I know and recognize that guy very well that she described. Oh, right, but anyway, yeah. that was 88th and March 25th, 1989, 27 years ago, we got married in the same church, Columbus, Georgia. My family yeah. came over and the rest is both history and destiny. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. so great. Well, Leif, it's been really great to get to know you this whole time. Um, doing these podcasts is kind of a new thing for GMA. We're still kind of unpacking what it could be and what what it could you know how it can unfold but um just as like the president founder of gma what do you what do you think is your vision what do you think this podcast could turn out to be well, what i hope at least with a, even the first one here is just giving some of my history uh, that is also connected to my destiny and and part of that is just to be able to see that within each one of us there is a potential and i think that part of what my life is all about is that it's kind of if God can use him, he can use me. Mm. But to be able to see the processes in life that you've gone through and, mm. and somehow to be able to see the journey that we've been through. Like I was just with a group of leaders in Norway that uh, some of them knew me from before and they were able to spend two days. But the way one of them described it is like uh, we can see the play, we can see the stage, we can see the actors, we can see the light, we can see the camera. Pretty much we've seen your life from you being on the conferences, mm -hmm. speaking where you're speaking, yeah. you going to the nation. But 
for the last couple of days while we've been together with you, what this did for us, it's almost like to see backstage, mm. to see the processes, yeah, to see the wiring that brought the light in there, to be mm. able to, that really uh, helped us a lot. Because if not, they say, oh, well, you've seen one million people saved. You've been mm. to 86 countries. You've seen all of these things. But not understanding, it's kind of, you see a tree with big branches and a lot of fruits, but you do not know underneath Underneath the ground, there is both seed, but there's also roots, there's process, there's all these things that is not being able to see on the surface. Yeah. So I think that part of my part is both to be able to describe some of that and to help the people that are listening, getting to know a different aspect of me because so much of my heart is there's this potential that I believe that God has placed within each one of us. And I want everybody to live full and then die empty. That's mm. pretty much what it is, mm. meaning that here in life, while we're here with all the obstacles, all the challenges, everything that is coming against you, all of those things that God in the middle of it has placed the potential within each one of us. Yeah. So there's enough of God in each one of us to change the world. And I think that's probably so much of my life. I'm just an ordinary person. It's not that, but with an extraordinary God that has started a process with him. And I'm still mm. in a journey to get with him. And it's almost like you climb the top of one mountain top and you're there and people can see you on the top of that mountain top. But as I'm looking ahead, I'm seeing all these other mountains I've not climbed yet. <laughs> and what we would like to do is kind of build a bridge from that mountain top to the next one. But what Jesus does, he starts to walk towards the valley and you say, hey, I want to be on a journey with you. And I like Jesus, I thought we were going to go from this mountain top to that. And he says, yes, but he's moving down into the valley again. Mm. So, so that's pretty much more how life looks like. And part of the journey I want to take people through is so when they're hearing the stories and seeing the testimony and the miracles taking place and nations are being discipled. Okay, what is the life that and what is the process? What is what is the journey from that mountain and go down again into the valley? What are mm. some of the things in the wilderness that we can learn in the wilderness season. Mm. Tell us about the winter season in life because everybody wants to harvest fall time. What is the springtime when things start to come up? How do you cultivate that? What about the summertime? So learning about the different seasons in life. So that's, that probably would be part of my heart is to take people on a journey with me, not mm. just through my life, but also for people to have an opportunity to send an email asking yeah. questions mm -hmm. so that using this podcast to be able to connect more heart to heart on the journey in life and then mm. let me help and to be a coach on the journey so hopefully some of the things that i will describe some of the you can say both the good bad and the ugly <laughs> to yeah. be able to see all the different things because i think that what makes my life a little unique is vulnerability showing the one side of the coin mm. and then from the vulnerability the other side is authority so there's almost two sides to the coin and i want to show my weaknesses too uh, mm -hmm. Not just my successes when I scored goal, but all the times I missed. And how did I learn from the lesson when I did not score? What makes me go out again to play ball and have fun? Mm -hmm. So again, some of that I think would be an encouragement also for the people because if all they know is they're seeing somebody that, wow, he scores. Wow, look at that. that that's amazing. Well, that's impossible. That's instead of seeing that, what is the journey that makes me going out there and over and over again? And when I miss, uh, how do we deal with it? So that's pretty much life is almost like that right. for every one of us. Mm. Many of us have stopped going out on the field, stopped dreaming or not showing up in life. And at the same time, but also afraid of failures. While any one of us, we, we live with failures pretty much on a daily basis. We many times miss more than what we score. 
but the difference is we don't give up. We never give up. We never quit. We hold on and continue to, as I said, through this process in life, uh, just grow and glow in the middle of everything else that, that God is doing. So anyway, that's that's part of my heart, part of my yeah, vision is for people. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be helping other people so they can experience the joy of life, the passion of life. To I, I, The best way I can describe it is just to wake up in the morning alive, awake, uh, going to bed and just... Knowing that, well, after the sunset, there is a sunrise. After winter season, springtime is coming. To, to just knowing, no matter what it is, if it is a school teacher or a nurse or a business guy, no matter who is listening, that they will wake up in the morning and just say, wow, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And thank mm-hmm. God it is Monday. And then live <laughs> yeah. full. And then eventually one day die empty because they did everything that God had created for them while they were here on this planet Earth. So that's so much of my heart. It doesn't matter where you're at in life, but at least live and live to the fullest. That's part of my life message. I want want people to go out there and even have fun doing it Mm. because you can find the joy in the middle of the pain. And that's kind of the paradoxes, living with tension intentionally. Mm. And that's what we all do. A lot of us want to move away tension. But you do not have the right sound if you take the tension away from the string of a violin. But you have to put that in tension to get the sound. So life is more about tension. Mm-hmm. Or we try to move away tension, but we lose the sound. And I want for people that are listening to find their voice, yes. to find their dream, and then to wake up in the morning. That's the joy that I have. And then when you're facing things that you cannot understand and explain, and you're living with these things, uh, how, how do we practically speak and deal with it? If yeah. I can help each one to get to know me better, but also for me to be able to share some of the life lessons that will be worthwhile my time when I'm home to be able mm-hmm. to share some life lessons mm-hmm. that can help and add value to people. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing your heart on that. Um, we'd like to give you opportunity as a listener to um, send in your questions or if you would like to hear a specific life lesson from life, we'd love for you to send your questions to admin at globalmissionawareness.com and we'll try our best to get a, um, some time with Leif and hear his heart um, and answer your questions. Leif, do you have any final comments or anything on your heart that um, you want to just release to the listeners here today? I, I, just thinking I wanted to release just a blessing. Uh, it takes sometimes just a father's blessing to unlock the destiny yeah. that is in people's life. It's there's one thing, a lot of people that are listening are believing in God, but they do not know that God believes in them. Yes. And that's the kind of thing I'm sensing I wanted mm-hmm. to release mm-hmm. is that seed that is in their heart for that to start to grow. Uh, I'm sensing some of them even have dreams where there's been a funeral of their dreams. Mm-hmm. And part of what I, I would like also to, to pray and release over them is to unlock because there's going to be a resurrection of dreams again, even as they're hearing. So that was kind of a two things. One was to give just a father's blessing. Mm-hmm. And the blessing is just, I just want to release a father's blessing mm-hmm. because you are his and you're his beloved. <laughs> you are his beloved son. Or you're his beloved daughter. Mm -hmm. And Papa, God loves you, likes you, delight in you, and he believes in you. I thank you, Father, for Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you capture the Father's dream. You had a vision for your Father's dream. But you also had a dream, Jesus. And that to restore all of us back to fullness. Restore us back again to Papa. You are the way. 
way to the Father. You're the truth, the truth about the Father. You're also the life, the life of the Father. You said if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to bring us back again to a good, good Father mm. so that we can dream together with him. So I'm just releasing now for many of the people that somehow have stopped dreaming, even for some of the ones that perhaps because of disappointment, discouragement, they've had expectation, uh, but it's this hope defer has made your heart sick. And I just sense that there's a lot of people's hearts mm. that have stopped living Mm. And it started to die, mainly just because you hoped and you had expectation, but things in life happen. And then as a result of that, your dream started to die. But I'm just speaking right now into that very core of who you are, who you were before the foundation of the world. To see you the way that Papa God sees you, to think about you the way he thinks about you, for you to feel what he feels about you. And then eventually for you to wake up and start to do what your father is doing and say what your father is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit. So just release to any, any seed that has just been laying in the ground, the seed of a dream, the seed of a vision. I just release resurrection to that seed. And its seed is about to go into good soil, into a good heart, and it's going to grow. And I thank you for the gestation period, even before the birth of that dream again. I thank you that even in the season of gestation, as they're carrying that dream, and I just thank you that I get to be a dream releaser in this season to raise up sons and daughters that are dreaming with God, but also sons and daughters where God starts to dream with them. And it's called desire because when you delight yourself in him, he said, I will give you the desire of your heart. So I just release right now many of the people that have had desire, but they thought it was secular. This is not religious enough or whatever it might be. I just release also over you as you focusing on fulfilling God's dream. Now God wants to dream with you and f f fulfill your dream. So even as you are listening to this, just make a notepad and, and just, it's like Papa God says to you, hi, little boy, hi, little girl, what would you like to do? Start to write it down. But I also want to encourage you to not write any spiritual for the first four or five. Let it just be things that comes out of you that you would like. Because it is the Father's pleasure to give his sons and daughters good gifts. So I thank you, Father, for your pleasure. And that we will wake up in life. And that we will wake up <laughs> and be awake while we are dreaming. And then suddenly, I'm just hearing the word suddenly. There's going to be the suddenlies in your life as you just decide to show up. to Get back out on the field. Not to be so worried if you're going to score or not score. But just saying, I'm going to be out there playing ball and having fun and do it together with a team of other players, mm -hmm. other dreamers. So just welcome to God's family. God's dream team is just ordinary players that certainly have an extraordinary coach who believes in you. His name is the Holy Spirit. So come Holy Spirit, just fill them, fill them, fill them with a very life, with a very passion, with a very vision, with a very heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Just fill them, fill them so that you can spill them, fill them, fill them. So that you can spill them. Mm. Overflow of life and life abundantly. There was an enemy. He came to kill, steal and destroy. But Jesus says, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. John 10, 10. So it's time for you to start to live that life and life more abundantly. Out of the wilderness and into your promised land. I've released that over you in this season. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.